Welcome to the God Put Me Up On Game podcast with Kristen R. Harris, where God shares all the good game because he wants you to win. This is the podcast for winners. Hey, winners, what's going on, guys? Thank you so much for coming down to the winner's circle for another episode of God Put Me Up One Game. I'm super excited because this week we have a very special game changer in the building. I promised you guys on last week that we were going to have a tough conversation this week. We were going to talk about Jesus and race and all that good stuff. So I brought a very special special guest down to the winner circle. It is none other than my pastor, Pastor Sam Hamstra. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Kristen. I am honored to be on your show. Uh, I'm honored to have you. It is such a blessing that you are in the building. Um, I just like that anytime someone comes down to the podcast, they introduce themselves to the winner circle. So Pastor Sam, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yes, my name is Sam Hamstra. I was born and raised, well, I was born in Wisconsin, raised in the south side of the south suburbs of Chicagoland, uh, currently pastor Anthem Church, located in Hammond, Indiana, been married to uh, Miss Taylor for 15 plus years. We have one son, uh, Daniel, he's six years old, and uh, th- that's kind of the snapshot about me, went to school down in Nashville, Tennessee, to Lipscomb University, graduated from St. Xavier with a communication degree. And uh, started started Anthem Church uh, about seven years ago now. So that's a little bit about my journey. Love it, love it. So first of all, I, I don't think I knew that you were from Wisconsin. That's my first time even knowing that information. I thought you were a Chicago native. It's hard as you go for the Cubs. <laughs> I keep it I keep it hidden that I'm from I was I only lived there for two years, you know. I don't want okay. people to know I'm a cheese head. <laughs> <laughs> well listen guys, I brought Pastor Sam down to the podcast. One because he's just an amazing individual. Um I've loved sitting under his leadership at Anthem Church. But um even bigger than that, if you can't tell by his voice or even by his name, He's like a cool white guy, okay? So with the climate of the country right now, which doesn't really seem to shift, but at times it's more highlighted than others, I wanted to bring him on to have a very candid conversation about Jesus and race. And I just felt like, you know, we we wanted to broaden our perspectives and get conversation from other sides. And so, Pastor Sam, you may remember that I traveled to Ghana back in October, right? I want to take this way back to the roots of Africa, okay? Because, you know, I'm, I'm a black woman, so I want to really dive into this. And so I went to Ghana back in October, and while it seems that Jesus literally lives in Ghana, that's what I think, because everywhere <laughs> I went, there were churches and big posters about conferences. I was like, man, Jesus lives here. But even with all of that, there's so many uh, Africans in Ghana who have such a disdain for Christianity because they view it as the quote-unquote white man's religion. And, um, you know, when we do the research, we can see that Christianity was on the continent of Africa even as early as the first century um, in Egypt, but they still have these feelings because of the way that um, those who came in and captured the Africans and brought them over here, they feel like, you know, they gave them or they forced the religion on them and they begin to strip them of their cultural practices and that type of thing. And then we fast forward to today and we're still dealing with the effects of Christianity being used as a tool of oppression for hundreds of years. So I don't think it's 
you know, a no-brainer that there's a huge population of black people who have a hard time accepting Christ as, as, as someone who's for them. What do you say as a man of cloth? What do you say to those people, to that group of people who think that this is a white man's religion, it's used to oppress our people? So I think off the bat, I, I would probably say I don't think most Caucasians that I'm around even know that, that that's a thought. And so um, I, I think uh, just educating people on the front side, just hearing the story of Ghana, uh, just different things. I've been learning over the years as just kind of travel a little bit. You know, I asked somebody from the Philippines one time, like, hey, do you, do you have like racial tension you deal with these? Like, and he was like, you're, you're a moron, man. We're, we're Filipino. <laughs> we don't deal with this. And so uh, I think just educating ourselves on history that this really happened. And then, and then from there, rewinding the clock even back further um, and looking at the person of Jesus and what he came to earth for. And, and really, for me, being Caucasian in a multi-ethnic setting, just very quickly bringing to the table that Jesus was not Caucasian, which is shocking to people <laughs> right off the bat sometimes, which shocks me. Uh, but Jesus, I, you, know, I, you know, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble, but I really think Jesus is probably Middle Eastern looking. Yeah, and, I and, think so too. <laughs> a little darker skin, you know, not yeah, not what yeah, we see on skin. the imagery that is, you know, put in front of us all the time. Yes, and so yeah, so I think Jesus, if we just looked at how he looked, and going back to where he came up in and where he was born, what Jesus looked like and what Jesus stood for, that Christianity was um, birthed out not by the white man; it was birthed in in the Middle East by Jesus, who was Middle Eastern, and his message was that Christianity was for all people. That was one of his main messages. So I think really kind of going back to the heartbeat of Christianity, the heartbeat of Jesus, um, and, and kind of trying to strip away the religious boundaries around the conversation and just getting to the person of Jesus first and finding common ground in that, I found that to be probably the most important part of the conversation is uh, that that acknowledging that this is true, it's real, this happened. Because honestly speaking, I think sometimes you're going to talk to some white people who want to bypass the harshness of what happened um, in in real history. Just um, in the, and I'm not speaking for all white people, but I've come across a large sect of people who just don't want to talk about it. They think it's something that happened in the past. I had nothing to do with it without ever saying, well, this is a very real thing that happened. I'm in the place that I'm in in my life because I've been privileged my whole life. And just kind of coming to this, this place of just saying, okay, we can agree. Um, if I were to look at some things, there's some things that I've never had to deal with as a Caucasian that you deal with on a daily basis. And so coming to a point of agreement, um, but then rewinding the, the clock back from that and really going back to Jesus and taking away kind of the religious boundaries um, that we've come to know of Christianity and just saying, let's, can we, can we agree on Jesus and then have conversations? Yeah, I think that's good. And, and I really love that you said that, you know, it's really about acknowledging that this happened and um, we can't just sweep over it because it is an integral part of everything that we've experienced and, and just really taking accountability for that. So in that same vein, I, um, I don't know if you're, are you familiar with black liberation theology at all? I, I am, but I would love if you could give me the gist. So, okay, so the gist is, like, I think in 1966, 
um, a guy by Reverend James Cone. He founded this whole movement, and it's basically to make the gospel relevant to the life and the struggles of American blacks. And I think with that, just going back to your point, as a pastor of someone who shepherds a flock of very diverse individuals with a very large percentage of black parishioners, I don't know what the percentage is, but I do think it's a large number. Um, What do you think your personal responsibility and maybe the responsibility of even your church is to ensure that the needs of those black parishioners are met? Yeah, I definitely feel responsibility for it. and even just in conversations and heartbeat and who we are, to, to me, Christianity, what makes it so special, it, it, at its core, it's for all people. Uh, that Christianity was birthed out of a place that it is for those who don't fit in. Um, it's for those, Jesus came for those not who knew they were healthy, he came for the sick. And so I definitely feel a burden to have that conversation and then really point to me quickly, though, to kingdom uh, what I would just call kingdom living over um, any other theology, just at the top end that Jesus came for all people, meaning I'm going to love all people, which makes us brothers and sisters right at the jump. So I don't subscribe to all of uh, liberation theology uh, just because I feel like at its core, uh, Christianity means that Sam and Kristen are brother sister because we are related by the blood of Jesus. And so, but I would say Um, I am very aware, though, of different people. Um, We've had people come into our church who, like, definitely I could see had a hard time when I got up to start preaching because I was white. (laughs) And so, um, and and one of them is is just sent me a message this week and made my day is joining the church. Uh, Wow. But it was a good six-month process, I think, of him really feeling me out. Like, are you, ve- are you real? Is this, is this something? There's been conversations behind the scenes. There was, uh, you know, I laid hands on him one day to pray for him, and I could tell he was a little uncomfortable with it. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> but to go back to your question, yeah, I definitely feel just um, kind of a responsibility in our situation to have conversations, and more so just because we're, we're a multi-ethnic church in a suburb, which is unique. Um, I think sometimes, like, you know, I know people who pastor multi-ethnic churches in like the West Loop, for example. It's a little bit different to me because that's people all live together. Um, for us, like, you know, my, honestly speaking, my neighborhood's 80% white. Your, yours is probably 80% black, right? And so yeah. <laughs> uh, neighborhoods are, are not as diverse and so things like that. Yeah, you know, the Chicagoland area in general is extremely segregated. I always have this conversation with my friends who live in different parts of the country. It's it's mind-blowing when you come to this area how segregated we actually live and how our communities are just not integrated the way they are in other parts of the country. Um, I think it's really interesting that you mentioned that guy who had a hard time because I wanted to actually share um, my personal story because another point of the, um, I know the the Black Liberation Theology, and I'm with you on some points of that because I do think some of these things are kind of created to further divide as, as opposed to bringing together. But one of the things that it wants to teach black people is how to be unapologetically black and still Christian at the same time. And I think that a lot of people struggle with that because, you know, we, we get these things in our ear that are like, this isn't for you. But, you know, at the same time, I, I'm a black woman. And so when I first came 
to the church. I, I'm not going to lie. Now, I love you guys. Let me preface it with that. I love you. I love Taylor. I love Daniel. I love your family. I actually enjoy serving under your leadership. But I'm going to be honest. When I first came and we were kind of dating and checking out this church, I was in the back of my mind, I was like, now this is different. You know, I've never sat under the tutelage of a Caucasian pastor. So I, I had to really go to God, like, you know, I need you to work on me. Like, is there some stuff that's in me? But here we are. And so as a black woman, that to know that I had that struggle, I can only imagine, as you said, for a black man, because for so long they felt like, you know, they've sat under a seat of oppression when it came to um, men of, of uh, Caucasian descent or whatever. So I wanted to know for you, honestly, do you ever feel the weight or the insecurities that come with pastoring a flock that looks like yours? <laughs> yes. Pretty much every week. Um, I think like, um, like especially our, we reach not only different ethnicities at our church, but then like put in different social classes, right? So it's just such a different eclectic crowd. And so I honestly, when we first started, was unaware of the weight of what you just said. And so God has put us in some situations in our life. We, we, we were trying to adopt an African-American child in, uh, through the foster care system. And I had, a, I had this child's mother look me dead in the eyes and say, I don't want my son being raised by a white man. And so there was just some wow. things that I said, okay, I have to understand why you feel that way because it was a real feeling. But then also on our side, uh, just in full transparency, my, my, my parents have a cabin in the upper peninsula of Wisconsin where you can't find like a black person for like, you know, for 45 minute radius. Mm -hmm. you know? So <laughs> there was like this real thought in our head, like, but then we we're experiencing the weight of what you live through every day. Meaning, like, I don't know if we can go up here anymore. I don't know if, like, I can actually drive through certain parts of the country anymore. Um, because, it, so there's been, like, this kind of realization of, um, because just very honestly speaking, there, there's a large majority of white people who feel like what you just said is playing the black card. And, and I, mm -hmm. I know people aren't going to say that, uh, mm -hmm. but until I experience it in my own life, um, I just was like, oh, people are just making this up. What, I mean, we live in 2020, you know? And so yeah. once I started to get an understanding of just uh, generational things like of like oppression uh, systems, sitting in a room with a very strong black man who was educated, who um, and he was sitting there weeping that he literally um, his boss called him an n-word in front of a staff and he went down into his car and was crying and like wow. i think understanding some life experiences and then walking into the pulpit understanding like there is every time a new person walks in um they're they're looking at me a certain kind of way um every time uh based on your past history where you grew up uh you're probably looking at me a certain kind of way um, and so definitely feel the weight of that on a weekly basis, just trying to um, find quick ways to connect with people um, mm -hmm. where I think where they're going to at least be open to hearing the gospel yeah. out of yeah. somebody from a, that looks a little different than they're used to. And then to show like maybe we have more in common than we, we, we thought. 
Absolutely. Well, I think you do a great job of pushing through that and and staying committed to your assignment. Um, regardless of the weight of what's going on. Um, I think it's really key something that you just said that, you know, a lot of white people just think that we're playing the black card and, you know, this is a reality. Get over it. It's 2020. Why are we still talking about this? And I know, you know, you're very aware as the rest of the, the rest of the country or the rest of the world, maybe um, we're on the heels of, you know, the exposure of Ahmaud Arbery and his February 27th, just cold-blooded murder. And then there was right after that, we were made aware. I don't know if you saw that Brianna Taylor, a young lady, she was 26 years old. She was shot and killed in her home on March 13th. She didn't get as much press and, and, and uh, coverage because what we see a lot of times is black women, we really don't get um, that type of exposure. Like, you know, we go missing and it's just like, whatever. But one thing that you said, which really is, is key is that, we're like the victims, and so this is a conversation that has to happen at the table of the white family or the white friends, you know, so what do you say to your counterparts, to other Caucasians? What do you say to them in, in matters like this? How do we get through this? How do we heal? Man, you're asking really good questions, Krista. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've had to try to be discerning on people that are willing to have a conversation on the front end because um, some people don't want to talk about it because it's not real to their life. So I think on, on just the front end for me, probably trying to find people that actually would be willing to have a conversation on, Hey, let's just be honest. We have not had to deal with some things in our life is, is white people that our black friends have had to. Um, but even me saying black friends, they don't have any. So, uh, right. you know, like, so, um, you know, and so I grew up in a, in an ethnic, um, tribe, so to speak. So like I'm Dutch, you could tell by my last name, I grew up in a Dutch reformed church. I went to a Dutch reformed school. Um, but I grew up in South Holland. So one of the reasons that I am the way I am, if, if people are listening to this from different parts of the, of the nation is I grew up in a, an area w that was, um, 90% white. And within three years, we were one of two white families on our block. And so um, my parents have just always taught us to love people the way that Christ loved them, no matter what. So I was exposed to multi-ethnic things at a young age and, and learned some different things about culture at a young age. So unfortunately, um, some people that I talked to have never really had conversations with somebody that doesn't look like them. Um, and so like, I think just having that conversation on the front end, can we agree even like Caucasian to Caucasian, like we, we are kind of privileged, not kind of, we are, you know, there's, mm -hmm. you know, w with raising Daniel's biracial, right. And so our son is biracial. There's things that we're going to have to teach him that my dad never had to teach me. Right. Um, and just off the jump, you know, just talking to different kids from church and that we've had a different role in, like, I've never had to have a conversation. My dad never had to talk to me what I need to do when I get pulled over. Yeah. You know, like, but it's a conversation that I'm sure James has had to have with your daughters, you know. Absolutely. And just, and so listen, think, put your hands in the air. Like, just listen, oblige with whatever, whatever they're asking you to do. Like, these are conversations we have at the dinner table, you know. Yeah. And like, for me, it wasn't like, it just wasn't like my dad, my mom never had that conversation with me. Cause mm -hmm. it was like basically like, 
it just doesn't happen. And right. so I think like for me on the front end, like having conversations with some of my uh, just people that I'm in a relationship with, like, hey, can we at least agree like that our lives are different? And then from there, um, what I found through conversations with Ahmad and everything that this was probably learned through time is I didn't know my voice meant as much as it did in these conversations until I started mm-hmm. speaking. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I think sometimes like I could probably tie this conversation to like a funeral when somebody dies, you know, like it means something when you say something. And if you don't say something, it's also speaking a whole lot more. It's just saying you don't care. And so, like, if we looked at that in, in reconciliation and race and with situations like Ahmad, somebody in a leadership position, um, them raising their voice as a Caucasian actually carries a lot of weight saying, I'm willing to cross the line in order to step into reconciliation with people. I actually care enough to say something. And so those are some conversations I've had behind the scenes with some of my um, my, my white friends, um, some are, you know, some people don't talk to me anymore. Um, I think, you know, some are cool, some don't care. Um, you know, so I, I think, uh, for me, like trying to see, help people have a burden for this has probably been my approach. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you for even having the courage to have the conversations. And, you know, like you said, they don't, some people may not even talk to you, but I appreciate you for stepping out and and taking a stand because you're right. Your voice does matter. And um, to get to the place of healing is going to take the people who are on the other side to to bring us together. And I I think that really ties into what I want to talk about next, because I really sit back and I think that God's heart is truly grieved right now. And not just around race relations. There's so much going on in the world that I'm sure God is weeping over. But, you know, because we're having a conversation about race, I do think that that's one of those issues. But I also um, go back to the, to two particular scriptures about love. And I think about how perfect love casts out all fear and how love covers a multitude of sins. And I've often said many times that, pretty much all of our problems in the world essentially stem from a lack of love. And if we were to first get to a place, one of total and true repentance where, you know, it's not just a sorry, but it's literally a turn of behavior because we understand that that's where repentance is. And then we can actually get to that place where we can live out those two scriptures. I believe that we can get to a healing and become whole as God intended because when I think about perfect love drives out all fear, you know, I think a lot of white people are fearful of of blacks. Um, we hear all the time that, you know, when it comes maybe to black males, they look scary or, you know, we, we feared our life. But even beyond that, I think that sometimes, and this is just my, this is the gospel according to Kristen, everyone. I'm not, <laughs> but I think that sometimes there's a fear just because they look at how resilient we are as a people. Like they've, tried so much to break us and to oppress us and yet we still come out standing and that's something to be feared you know because to see the resiliency of that people and then on the flip side you have black people who have to once we get to that place of repentance and we see the changed behavior we got to extend that love that covers a multitude of sins so there's sins that their forefathers or maybe you, you aren't even necessarily guilty of but that love covers a multitude of sin so I think that you know that love is the healing bomb. What's, what's your take on that? What's your take on love being the healing bomb? 
Yes, I, I totally agree, and I love the way you said it. Um, yeah, I think uh, I agree with you. I, I think sometimes we struggle with maybe what that looks like in practice, what it really means to love somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely think that white people are, I don't know if intimidated or scared or ignorant or fearful is the right word of like inner uh, race relationships. You know, I think like I've, I've come to a place, you know, like I think it's interesting. I feel like I'm graced to reach African-Americans. It's a grace that's on my life. And so for some people it might not come as naturally. So, but I have enough relationships where like people know now, like I'll just make dumb jokes, you know, like I, I think I know it's so you got not... a lot of swag too. You know, you got, you got a little <laughs> swag, you know, you swaggy. So when you're swaggy, it's a little easier to reach. <laughs> that helps. Um, yeah. Thank you for saying that, Kristen. Um, yeah. I think um, one area though, I think people are a little intimidated by saying the wrong thing. So like, I know at this point in my life that it's ignorant to, to ask to touch a black woman's hair. So I'm just using an example, right? I'm so happy you learned that lesson early in life. Okay. <laughs> early. So now like I know enough that you're not supposed to do it. Well, I'll make jokes. Be like, Hey, Kristen, your hair looks great. Can I touch it? You know, but you know, I'm joking. Right. But like, right, right. there really is this place of, um, you know, like my, my brother and sister-in-law are, um, they're, they're adopting a, a young African-American girl. Uh, well, they were, were in process girl, but now boy, long story. But um, like people in their community would just come up to them and say, Oh, can I touch your hair? And it's like, man, that is just ignorant. You know, and so I think like some people are afraid of having conversations because they're afraid of saying the wrong thing. Um, and like, Absolutely. and so I think that's part of it. And then also just probably not understanding. Um, and then like just not understanding, maybe we do have more in common than we actually think. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so I think there is like that thought of there's a fearful front end to a conversation, but I 100% agree that love is definitely the healing balm. And then pointing back to Jesus, she's saying, love one another the way that I've loved you. Yeah, um, yeah. He loved when it was uncomfortable. He loved when he was ridiculed. He loved when it offended other people. He, he loved at the cost of his own reputation. And I feel like if more Christians would be willing to step into that conversation at the cost of our own conversation and what our own peers might think of us talking to somebody that doesn't look like us, we would probably mm-hmm. see a whole lot more reconciliation over time. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. You know what? So I, I want to go back really quickly because something you said just about um, the, the quote-unquote white Jesus and, of course, how we see these images. I just want to speak to anyone who's listening, especially if you are a black person and you're struggling with um, – with accepting Jesus as your personal savior because, you know, we've been inundated with these white images of Jesus and, you know, you see him as fair skinned with blue eyes and you don't think that you can submit to that. I just want to say that let Jesus be whatever color you need him to be. If that's what's going to get you to trust him, to believe him. I think the only thing that he cannot be is wrong or sinful or unrighteous. And being black is not those things. So if you need Jesus to be black for you to come into agreement and submit to him, then let him be black. If, if you are a Latina and you need for him to be brown, then let him be brown. Like let him be whatever he needs to be in your life so that you can get into a right relationship with him. 
That's that's just how I feel. Like it, whatever it needs to be. <laughs> that's good. I like it. I like it. Because I, I think that you know we have to sometimes. It's easier for us to come into agreement with something we can relate to. And so maybe if you feel like Jesus is just that unrelatable for you, and that's what you need to do to come into the door, and you can really sit at his feet and learn more about him, then, hey, by all means, do what you got to do so that you can get to that place. That's so good. Yeah, and actually, you saying that, too, that is probably one of the biggest barriers we've seen over time just in Christianity, right? It's like people aren't really rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting the package that he's coming mm-hmm. um, in their life. And so to be able to tear down those barriers, I really like the way you said that. And then yeah. over time comes knowledge, information, learning. Absolutely. Right? You grow, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's, you, you maturing and you move past all of that. Because I'm going to be honest, I probably, because I am so unapologetically black, I probably had to envision black Jesus so that I could get to this place. But now none of that matters. I'm just like, I'm all sold out for you. So I don't care what you look like. I'm, I'm here. I'm all in. And let's ride this thing to the wheels fall off. So, you know, do what you got to do to get there. Well, listen, Pastor Sam, I want to lighten the mood just a little uh, real quickly. We do this, what we call the lightning round. Three quick questions. Just give me your knee-jerk reaction. Don't think too hard about it. Number one, what's your dream vacation? Riviera Maya, Mexico. Yes, I love Riviera Maya. Yeah, I went twice last year. (laughs) Yes, God is good. I went once. I was trying to go again this year. (laughs) Yes, I love it. I love it. Um, What's a book recommendation and why? Man, um, I think uh, I, I recently just picked this book up again. It's called The Orange Code, and I can't remember the author. Um, it's about building a culture of misfits, basically, like being a rebel, being a rebel with a cause. I would recommend The Orange Code. It's by some guy okay. with a weird name. Yeah. Okay, The Orange Code. I'll look into it. Lastly, um, pick a number, a random number, one through 2,000. I got my book here, 2,000 Questions About Me. <laughs> 1,012. 1,012. If you personalize your car's license plate, what would the plate say? (laughs) Hammer time. Hammer time. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people don't know this, but uh, before I got into ministry, I call this BC before I got serious about Christ. People only know me is Hammer because my baseball nickname. <laughs> oh, you were out there killing it on the field, huh? <laughs> I thought so, you know. <laughs> love it, love yes, it. That's a great question. So yeah. how can the winners connect with you? I'm pretty sure they want to come and find Pastor Sam because you've spit all the good, good game on the podcast today. How can we connect with you? Yes, uh, my website is samhamstra.com. Uh, also, Instagram, Facebook, uh, backslash Sam Hamstra. Those are the, the main three ways. So website, samhamstra.com, and then, yeah, Facebook, Instagram, backslash Sam Hamstra. Love it. Do you have anything you want to say before we go? Any last remarks to share with the winner circle? Yes. Yeah, so I know this is your podcast, but can I ask you a question? Sure. So I am going to be sharing this with my people. Um, 
And uh, one one thing is is like you know my my circle is probably more African American sometimes than it is Caucasian these days. But <laughs> I, I think one question I've been asking is a Caucasian in, in the la- in this time specifically, just with everything that just came down the pipeline with the mod and everything. What what can Caucasians be doing to to make the first step? I've just been curious. What I would love to hear what what I maybe could share with with some people in this season. How how can Caucasians kind of take that first step? Um, to, to bridge this divide? You know what? I think you've really touched on it already. I think that the acknowledging and having an open mind, not shutting it down that we're always just playing the race card. Like I don't, we're hardly ever playing the race card. We're playing the reality card. Hmm. Um, and there's a huge difference. And so having that open mind to acknowledge it, because we understand that, acknowledging a thing is the first step in anything. You know, when when you hear people who have addictions, you can't get to your healing. You can't become that survivor of addiction if you're still in denial that the addiction even exists. Same thing with this. If, if you remain in a place of denial, we can't get to where we want to be. And I believe, though, there are a, a huge percentage who are hurting and who may just forever feel like, you know what, I don't even want to coexist with Caucasians, there is so many more of us who are in a place where we we want unity, we want cohesion, we want to live peaceably, we want to be able to go for a jog, we want to be able to sell loose squares outside even if we're not supposed to be and not lose our life. You know, we, we want to be able to be pulled over in a routine traffic stop and still make it home to our families. So we don't want the smoke that comes with the opposition. We want to get to a place of healing, but we just need for those who are in opposition, those who are oppressing us to understand and to acknowledge it. That's the first step. And and begin to, like you said, use your voice. We can't change this. This is not our problem. We're the victims. So those who are um, the, the um, what is it, whoever, the oppressor who's coming after us, they have to acknowledge that there's a problem, and they have to begin to have the courage like you to stand up and speak up and speak out and really have those tough conversations, even if it means that you lose a friend, even if it means that, you know, your family member falls out with you for a while because that's what it's going to take to get to that. And then not just have the voice. I know you asked for the first step. I'm giving a few steps. Well, this but is great. <laughs> not just have the voice, but there are some things that you can do within your power. And I, I think that not just with, with this situation, but just in situations in general, sometimes we forget that small impacts made by many people make huge impacts. And so we look for huge things to do. But Huge, I think there, there's a quote, and I can't remember her name. Her name is Margaret somebody, but she says that huge impacts to, um, huge things to impact the world seldom happen, but they're small things that, that are around us every day. And so if we each took advantage of those small things that we could do, like, you know, if you live in the neighborhood, getting to know your neighbor. I know in, I live across the street from um, this white guy and his family, and when they first moved in, they act like they had an attitude with us. And I'm thinking, we've been here. What, dude, what are you doing? Did you move to my neighborhood? And so I had to force myself, like literally force myself on him, like, hey, how you doing? Because you're not going to live across the street from me and not speak. Like, that's just unbelievable. So even small things like that, like getting to know your neighbors, 
um, you know, just integrating yourself in your workplace and not being segregated. Like, what are the small things that you can do to make a difference? Hmm. That's good. Super helpful, too. Thank you. Thank you. Well, <laughs> Pastor Sam, I appreciate you for coming down to the Winter Circle. I have enjoyed this conversation. I know that the listeners will. Um, I, I just appreciate your leadership. I told you that. I appreciate your leadership and just your wisdom, even with everything that's going on in this season, with this conversation, just everything. So I'm just delighted and honored that you spent a few moments coming down to the Winter Circle to talk to us. So thank you. Thank you, Kristen. Honored to be on your show. Thank you. So listen, guys, I know you took away some good, good games. Share this conversation with your circles, with your white friends, your black friends, with whomever you think needs to hear it, okay? Remember, God puts us up on the good, good game because he wants us to win. I will be back here next week, same time, same place. It's your girl, Kristen R. Harris, and I'm out. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in for another episode of God Put Me Up On Game. Make sure you follow us on social media at God Put Me Up On Game and at Kristen R. Harris. We'll see you next week.